If you need to borrow a Bible today, please raise your hand and the ushers will bring you one to use for our service. And you can just leave it in the pew after you're done. And uh, as you can probably tell, I am not Pastor Jason. Um, first clue is probably he's a much better dresser than I am. But um, in any case, he's actually in Ethiopia this, uh, this week. And he's in the process of currently trying to adopt a little girl named Mary. And so I'm preaching in his stead. And I'd like to open our time in prayer, praying for Jason, lifting up that adoption effort, as well as praying for our time uh, together. So let's pray. Merciful Father, we look to you for all our needs and all the things that our hearts desire. And right now we ask that you would bless Jason and Melissa as they are spending time with little Mary and seeking to adopt her into their family. We pray that you would be with them as they begin to bond with their new daughter. And we pray that you would bring about a positive ruling in the courts so that they would be able to bring her home in just a few weeks. And Lord, as we look into your word today, we pray that you will be present with us as well revealing to us the wonders of who you are and what you have done for your people through Christ. Grant us open ears and responsive hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wonder as the hubbub of the Christmas season has really gotten going, whether you've begun to sense a little irony in everything that's happening. And no, I'm not talking about the irony of... uh, American commercialism as the way that we celebrate the fact that one who was rich gave up everything for us who were poor. Uh, Rather, I'm talking about the irony of much of what we see and sing during the month of December, even in our own churches. After all, we see nativity scenes set up all over town where the, the precious moment when the shepherds and the magi and the angels converged on the Holy Family uh, to appreciate that moment. Those scenes never portray any disturbance, any danger. There's also just always this peace about what's happening there. And of course, we sing about the silent night when all was calm and all was bright, and when the child could sleep in heavenly peace. We sing about Mary as that mother mild, Jesus Christ, her little child. And the sense is is that it's as serene as a precious moment's figurine. And while there's no doubt that there were moments of peace surrounding this, this moment when, when they realized that Christ has been born of a virgin, um, the reality that we see and portrayed in the scriptures is, is much more tumultuous than these nativity scenes or the, the carols that we sing will allow. In fact, we can't read the biblical account of Christ and his birth in his earliest days without seeing that the last thing Joseph, Mary, and the child could do was rest easy, and sleep in heavenly peace. On the contrary, as we saw last week, King Herod views the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, as a threat to his rule. And rightly so. For as we learned from the Magi last week, Jesus is the true King of Israel, the only one who deserves to rule over his people. And while the Magi exhibit the proper response of going to worship this newly born king, Herod has begun the plot to kill this child before he can become a political threat. And this week, we're going to see the extent of the danger that the Christ child was truly in. Though he was Emmanuel, God with us, the Savior come to save us from our sins, he was also an extremely vulnerable baby boy. The second person of the Trinity became a helpless infant 
and entered into a world full of hostile powers that we might be saved. And this is the real drama of the infancy narratives we find in the Gospels. And what we're going to see today as we watch this drama unfold is that we are going to be called to trust the Lord despite circumstances which may seem to question his sovereignty and his goodness. As we look at Matthew 2, 13 through 23 today, we're going to encounter three scenes which demonstrate that these circumstances that seem to question God's goodness and his sovereignty actually confirm these aspects of his character. So let's begin by looking at the first scene, verses 13 through 15 of chapter 2. Remember that in verse 12, we've been told that the Magi who came to worship Jesus were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, but to return to their country uh, on another road. Let's see how the drama continues to unfold in verses 13 through 15. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. So what we see in this first scene is yet another intervention by the Lord through an angel appearing to Joseph in a dream. He's being called to take his newly formed family to flee his homeland and to go to Egypt, fleeing in safety. By this point, Joseph's already been directed in a dream related to taking Mary as his wife when he was informed that this child was from the Holy Spirit and not from another man. He's seeming to grow familiar with this pattern of the Lord's leading and intervening to take care of this family and to execute this plan. And thus we see in verse 14, Joseph's immediate response of obedience He got up from his sleep, gathered the family and their meager belongings, and went to Egypt that night. He must have sensed the extreme urgency of the moment. For traveling at night in those days was was not ideal in our day either, but even more so then. Bethlehem was very close to Jerusalem where Herod lived, and it's likely that the troops may have even been in transit at that time. And at this point, I, I think we do well to reflect a little bit on Joseph's experience here. I mean, to put it mildly, this was not what Joseph expected when he asked Mary to be his wife. The betrothal seemed to start off well enough, but when he learned of Mary's pregnancy, it was like a dagger to his heart. And though the Lord intervened to assure him that this child was from the Holy Spirit, other people in the village didn't receive such assurances. And the fact of the matter is that from day one, their marriage was under, was covered in complete scandal. And beyond that, his firstborn son was not biologically his, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. To us, this isn't such a big deal, but in the ancient world, progeny was a huge deal. His firstborn son was was adopted, and this would have been a common source of ridicule for family and friends. But now, now things get even more off track. For now, he's being told that he's got to take his newly formed family and flee their homeland to head to Egypt for an indefinite period of time. No settling down, none of the security that comes in staying close to home and close to family. This was not part of Joseph's game plan when he was drawing up the big, bright dreams of his life. 
but he obeys, trusting the Lord to lead him so that he can continue to lead and take care of his family. And this obedience is what enables the circumstance of verse 15 to come about. The family leaves for Egypt and stays there until King Herod dies. And this is where Matthew wants to show us the significance of the sojourn in Egypt. To show us how these difficult circumstances actually confirm God's sovereignty and goodness rather than deny them. For Matthew, in reflecting on Jesus' sojourn and his eventual return to Israel, says in verse 15, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. See, one of the big things that Matthew is interested in exploring in his gospel is how Christ's coming actually fulfills the Old Testament prophecy that talked about a coming Messiah, a coming Savior. So we've already seen how he's appealed to Micah 5.2, for instance, to talk about that the birthplace of the Messiah was said to be Bethlehem. And so Jesus' birth in Bethlehem confirms that he is this promised Messiah. But when we look at Matthew's appeal to an Old Testament passage here in verse 15, we see him kind of dealing with this Old Testament prophecy in a little bit more nuanced kind of way. See, if we go back to the Old Testament, if you look in your Bibles, you usually see a little note indicating, well, where is this? And we find it in the book of Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1. But interestingly, that passage is not a messianic prediction per se. Rather than looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, it's actually looking backward to the Exodus event, the time when God called his people, Israel, out of Egypt to come and worship him and enter the promised land, the land that, he, that God had promised to Abraham. So what's, what's going on? How, how can Matthew appeal to this verse that talked about the Exodus in relationship to the coming of the Messiah? Well, in my opinion, this is where things get really cool about how Christ fulfills all of the Old Testament. Remember what Jesus said to a couple of his disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 after he had risen from the dead. He told them that all that the Old Testament spoke about ultimately finds its fulfillment in him. It was ultimately all about him. And so when we read in Hosea 11 about how God called Israel out of Egypt to be his son, but how Israel rebelled and how they, they didn't become the obedient son that they should have been, Matthew wants us to help connect that event to Jesus' coming and the significance of it. See, Jesus is the true Israel. He is the Son of God who is completely obedient and who will honor the Lord in all that the Lord calls him to do. And he'll do this where God's chosen people, Israel, had completely failed in the Old Testament. Matthew connects us to Hosea 11 in order to take us back to that Exodus event and remind us that the previous Israel had failed. He wants to remind us that they were brought miraculously out of Egypt only to complain and only to create false gods for themselves and ultimately to break the covenant that God had made with them. All of Israel's history serves as evidence that they could not live up to this calling to be God's son, for they were covenant breakers in need of a savior. But now, with the coming of the Messiah and the inbreaking of the new covenant, there was a chance for a fresh start. God is calling the one who is his true son out of Egypt in a way that shows solidarity with Israel 
and his capacity to do what they could not. I think there's a, there's a scholar that I looked at as I was preparing for this that puts this really nicely, and I actually want to put this up on the screen for you to read. His name's Craig Blomberg. He says it like this. There we go. Perfect. Just as God brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt to inaugurate his original covenant with them, so again God is bringing the Messiah who fulfills the hopes of Israel out of Egypt as he's about to inaugurate his new covenant. He goes on to say, From Matthew's perspective, Jesus is understood as summarizing the whole experience of Israel as well as bringing it to fulfillment. See, this we've got to grasp this incredible truth about who Jesus is and, and this particularly understanding that he is the Son of God par excellence. Where Israel failed to be God's Son and soiled the Old Covenant, Jesus, the Messiah, emerges as God's true Son, the one who, by his obedience, will enact a new covenant that will save Israel and all the nations from their sins. And we must remember that this significant connection is only possible because of the obedience of a lesser son, Joseph, who was willing to abandon the dreams that he had for his life in order to obey the Lord's calling. And I think here it's worth pausing for us to ask ourselves, are we willing to give up our vision of what life should look like in order to serve God and fulfill the role in salvation history that he has for us? I mean, because this wasn't what Joseph had in mind when he committed himself to following the Lord. Fleeing from his homeland to escape the wrath of a jealous king was not exactly what he signed up for. But this passage enables us to see that God was accomplishing an incredible purpose through these difficult circumstances. Circumstances that none of us would ever choose, and certainly that Joseph wouldn't choose. So where, where do you need to trust his leading right now? Where do you need to trust that God is doing something bigger in your life than you're able to see right now? Where do you need to trust his leading, even though it looks like it's going to involve circumstances that are unpleasant and unsafe? Where do you need to abandon your dreams for the dreams of God? Dreams about how you can serve faithfully to accomplish his kingdom purposes. Maybe these dreams that, that you need to abandon surround a certain view of how your family life is going to go or a certain view of economic status and acquiring that or acquiring the recognition of others or job security, any number of things. Maybe the dreams are about what you think your greatest accomplishment in life is going to be. Or maybe they're dreams about just laying low in life, never rocking the boat, always being in control. I think we're called to give those dreams over to God, submit them to him, and trust him for the result. And in Joseph's case, it meant him surrendering to God's plan and becoming a self-sacrificial husband and father to take care of his family so that the Messiah might become the true son of God called out of Egypt. Well, that's scene one. Let's move on to scene two and see what's going on in the drama unfolding back in Bethlehem. Verses 16 through 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, 
according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So while the Holy Family is in transit to Egypt, Herod realizes that the plot he had hatched to acquire information from the Magi has been ruined. And in keeping with what we know about Herod's character, he blows a casket and becomes furious. No wonder Matthew told us that that when Herod was disturbed by the news of the, the birth of the Messiah, all of Jerusalem was disturbed with him. You've heard the saying before, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Well, that's what's going on in Jerusalem right now. Herod is not happy, and all of Israel is not happy with him. But nothing prepares us for the atrocity which Herod initiates. According to the time that he learned from the Magi when the baby was born, he orders the execution of every single baby boy in Bethlehem two years and under. I mean, we have to pause and let that horrendous news settle in. And I think one way to do that is to think about that news in, in terms of our own church family. See, Bethlehem was estimated by some scholars to be a pretty small village around the area of about 500 people, which is more or less the size of our church when you think about everybody that comes in and out of these doors over the course of the year. Now, on the grand scale of history, the massacre of infants in a small village isn't, isn't going to make big waves. It's not going to make the papers. But for that village... For a group of people the size of EBF, that loss would have been unbelievably tragic. I mean, can you imagine the sorrow that would pervade our church family if all of our baby boys, two years and under, were were taken from their mothers and systematically executed? It boggles the mind how ruthless this is, how heartless and terrifying the king's actions really are. Joseph's willful obedience couldn't find a starker contrast than Herod's evil attempts to shore up his political power. And here, in Herod's murderous activity, we're reminded why Jesus had to come and die on a cross. For the kind of world that Jesus was born into was unthinkably hostile to the very one who was its savior and king. And this hostility from human and spiritual powers of darkness alike makes the wonder of the incarnation all the more incredible. God sent his son as a helpless baby boy, a child of a peasant family with no ability to defend themselves other than to flee. And that's why the meek and mild carols and the ever-peaceful nativity scenes just don't do justice to the biblical reality. This was no play-it-safe mission on God's part. It was more like a a black ops invasion of strongly occupied enemy territory. In fact, the Bible puts it in very stark terms like that in Revelation 12. We're told that the time of Christ's child's birth, the dragon, which represents Satan, sought to devour that child at the moment of his birth. It seems that Herod was a pawn in Satan's game, seeking to execute the Christ child before he could become a threat. And though his efforts to kill the Messiah ultimately failed, 
the rest of the infant boys in Bethlehem felt the unyielding wrath of this illegitimate king. So what does Matthew make of these events, which again seem to call into question God's sovereignty and goodness, right? I mean, how could God allow this atrocity to happen? Well, Matthew tells us confidently in verse 17 that this too was in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and that God is still in control and working out his good purposes for his people. He directs our attention to a verse from Jeremiah 31, a passage which is very significant in the Old Testament because it's one of the clearest articulations of a new covenant that's coming that will provide for the salvation of all of God's people. Look again at verse 18. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now what's interesting is that when we go back and look at Jeremiah 31, what we're going to find is that like the verse from Hosea 11, this is not an explicit reference to the coming Messiah. In fact, in Jeremiah it's very clear that the weeping refers to an intense mourning that accompanied the Babylonian exile when the Israelites were taken to Babylon in the 6th century B.C. The Babylonian exile was arguably the most tragic event in, God, in, the, in the history of God's people. And because of their disobedience to the Lord, Babylonian forces came and seized the land, deported the people, cut off the Davidic line of rulers, and tore the temple to the ground. And Ramah, which we see referred to here in the text, was one of the stopping off points for deportees. In fact, it was the last stop before leaving Israelite territory. So it became a site of incredible sorrow as women gathered to grieve over the husbands and sons who were never to be seen again. The Rachel referred to here is the wife of the patriarch Jacob and the mother of, of Joseph and Benjamin. And as Jacob's favorite wife, she came to be an embodiment of Israelite women and, and known as the mother of all Israel. But if this verse originally referred to the exile, then why does Matthew bring it up here in connection with Herod's murder of the innocents? Well, for one, he wants to communicate the depth of lament that's going on here. This slaughter of the baby boys in Jerusalem was for these women just as scarring as this original exile to Babylon was for the ancient Israelites. But beyond that, Matthew wants to communicate that God is still in control. And despite the fact that things may look completely hopeless, God still has a plan. Matthew wants us to see the connection between what's happening with Jesus and what Jeremiah talked about in chapter 31, the coming of a new covenant and the time when mourning and weeping finally are turned into laughter and joy. We don't have time to turn there today to look at that passage, but I really want to encourage every one of us this week to look at Jeremiah 31. When you go there, you'll see that this verse about Rachel's weeping is the only sorrowful verse in the entire chapter. Everything else is about the abundant love that God has for his people and his plans to save them. With the coming of Christ, the greater exile which God's people have been in since the fall of humanity is finally coming to an end. God is restoring his people 
and through the redemptive work of Christ, he's creating a world where murderous despots have no place and mothers never again have to grieve the untimely death of their children. This is a stunningly profound truth and one that I want to draw on the expertise of none other than than D.A. Carson up at Trinity to further articulate. Uh, This will be on the screen, hopefully. Yes, great. The tears of the exile are now being fulfilled. The tears begun in Jeremiah's day are climaxed and ended by the tears of the mothers of Bethlehem. He goes on to say, The heir to David's throne has come, the exile is over, the true Son of God has arrived, and he will introduce the new covenant promised by Jeremiah. See, the Bible doesn't ignore the tragedies of human history. Rather, it calls us to trust in a God who's sovereign over all that takes place and is seeking the good of his people by executing a divine plan of rescue. The exile, the slaughter of the the innocents in Bethlehem, and the 9-11s of our own day, all these events make it seem like God is distant, like he doesn't care about us. But Matthew is saying he's anything but distant. He has sent Emmanuel, God, with us to restore God's people so that the weeping and the mourning can finally stop. Nothing is purposeless. Nothing fails to come under the banner of what God is doing to accomplish his salvific purposes in the world. And so this raises the question, what tragedies have you experienced in your own life that have been difficult to trust the Lord with? You may not have experienced a slaughter of innocence, but where are the areas of deep loss for you? Where are the areas where you find yourself questioning God's goodness and his purposes for what's happened in your life? I know for me right now, there's a lot of significant tragedy happening in my family. Recently, my grandmother became a widow after 72 years of marriage. My dad has been diagnosed with prostate cancer. And my cousin has run away from home without leaving any uh, way for us to get a hold of her. And these things are are very easy for me to fret about. Um, And more than that, the deep loss that I sense my family experiencing is is very far from the plans and purposes that I would have, have established for them. But I've got to take my direction from Scripture in terms of how I'm thinking about these things. And I think Matthew's calling us to see that no tragedy escapes the sovereign purposes of our good God. He knows the depth of the pain and suffering that occur in this fallen world. And that's exactly why he sent his son into it. To experience it with us. To save us from it. And to redeem it for us. We as his people must continually cast our circumstances upon him. Especially the ones which are deeply tragic. Only then will we be able to take comfort in our sovereign and good God who weeps with those who weep, and who will one day wipe away every tear from our eyes. That was scene two. Finally, let's look at scene three and see what happens to the Holy Family after they come back from their sojourn in Egypt. Verses 19 through 23. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, And go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. 
And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. So this scene starts off with a note of irony. For after reporting the lengths that Herod went to go to to execute the Christ child, Matthew reports matter-of-factly that Herod was the one who died. And thus we begin this section reflecting on the fact that fighting against the plans and purposes of God is completely futile. As Psalm 2 reminds us, ultimately the Lord laughs at the schemes of wicked men who seek to conspire against the Lord and against his anointed one. It's it's sheer folly to seek to undermine the plans of the all-powerful, the almighty. It's it's like an ant plotting against the plans of the president. At the end of the day, it's, it's just kind of comical. And so when Herod passes from the scene, we have yet another angelic appearance to Joseph in a dream, this time to inform him that the family can return home. Joseph again responds with impeccable obedience, growing in his trust of the Lord with every decision that he's called to make regarding his family. But interestingly, there seems to be a hiccup upon their return. Archelaus, Herod's son, had a, had a reputation for being very much like his father. And he was the one who was ruling over the province of Judea where Bethlehem was located. And Joseph's gut reaction is suspicion of this new ruler. And this suspicion is confirmed by yet another angelic appearance, instructing them to withdraw from Judea, ultimately taking them to the region of Galilee and ultimately to the town of Nazareth. Luke, in his gospel, actually informs us that this is where Mary and Joseph hailed from, so it would have made sense for them to to move back closer to home. And plus, this region was under the rulership of another one of Herod's sons that didn't have as much of a reputation for being hot under the collar. The location in Nazareth was ideal in that it was a long way from Jerusalem and it was quite an out-of-the-way place, perfect for a family that was seeking to lay low. But interestingly, it was Nazareth's location that made this such a controversy for Jesus throughout the course of his ministry. You see, Nazareth is what we might call today uh, the boondocks, or you might use the terminology, it was a podunk kind of place. I don't know what you're familiar with. Some people would say it was backwoods, lacking the sophistication of the big cities. And, and I was just thinking about the, the equivalent of our day. Maybe something comes to mind for you. The best that I could come up with was from the movie Groundhog Day. Um, in it, weatherman Phil Connors leaves the big city of Pittsburgh to cover the annual Groundhog Day festival in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. Population, 5,864. Now, I apologize in advance for anyone who's from Punxsutawney, uh, but all that this cosmopolitan weatherman could see is a bunch of slack-jawed yokels explaining their behavior to one of his colleagues by noting, they're hicks, Rita. Well, Nazareth was the Punxsutawney of their day, so much so that Nazareth's reputation preceded it. In fact, a common saying in that day was, can anything good come out of Nazareth? They certainly weren't saying about that about the royal village of Bethlehem or the religious center of Jerusalem. And only with this background knowledge does it become clear why Matthew can conclude the scene by noting that once again, 
what was said by the prophets was fulfilled in Christ, that he would be called a Nazarene. See, the interesting thing is, if you were to look this quote up on Bible Gateway or whatever search engine you use for, for the Bible, you won't find a single place in the Old Testament where this phrase is uttered. Nowhere in the prophets is it said that the Messiah would hail from Nazareth. In fact, in John 7, the Pharisees combat the claim that Jesus is the Messiah by insisting that not even a prophet, much less the Messiah, could come from Galilee, where Nazareth was located. So what does Matthew mean when he says that Jesus' being from Nazareth fulfills what was said in the Old Testament? And there's a diversity of opinion among Bible scholars, but I think the most compelling answer is that Matthew is connecting Jesus with the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 and other passages like it. The prophet Isaiah describes the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 as one on whom God has laid the iniquity of us all. And we would all clearly recognize this figure as Jesus, who took the sin of the world upon himself at the cross. But earlier on in that chapter, Isaiah says that this suffering servant had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. King David, who often stands as a forerunner to Christ in the Old Testament, spoke in Psalm 69 about the reproach and the shame and the dishonor that accompanied him as the Lord's anointed one. See, Matthew is tying into a very important strand that develops in the Old Testament. It's one regarding the fact that the Messiah would actually not be held in high regard, but would actually be despised in certain ways. And this language of being called a Nazarene was a contemporary way of putting this Old Testament language. He was, he was a nobody. He was one whom the people didn't esteem because of his family of origin or his city of origin. And once again, I want to employ D.A. Carson to help make this point because the guy is just so quotable. Um, hopefully it's on the screen. He says, Jesus was brought to despised Galilee, to even more despised Nazareth, where he would grow up to win the label, Jesus the Nazarene. Not Jesus the Bethlehemite with all its rich Davidic overtones, but Jesus the Nazarene. And Carson goes on to remind us that this development which looks out of keeping with what we would expect of God's plan for the Messiah, was actually brought about by God's sovereign intervention so that the scriptures could be fulfilled that predicted that the Messiah would be one who would be despised. Indeed, we see these circumstances which at first seem to put into question God's sovereignty. How could he allow his Messiah, his chosen one, to end up in Nazareth? It allows us to see that this actually shows the wisdom of God, who delights in choosing the lowly things of the world to shame the strong. Jesus was born an adopted peasant boy who was viewed by almost everyone as coming from an illegitimate union, a bastard child. His first months on earth were spent as a refugee, fleeing to another land and sojourning in Egypt for a season. Upon his return, he was forced to settle not in the happening city of Jerusalem or the royally associated Bethlehem, but in the supposedly good-for-nothing Nazareth. And all this life, he would be reminded that nothing good can come from Nazareth. 
and that his very origins prevented him from being a candidate for the Messiah. But all these things took place so that God's incredible plan of salvation might march on and that all the Old Testament witness would find its fulfillment in Christ. God's sovereign rule over history, exercised for the good of his people, is upheld after all. So having surveyed these three scenes and, and how they bring the infancy narrative of Matthew's gospel to a close, I think we, a few concluding observations would be good. The first is, I think we need to see how central the role of angels have been in these first two chapters of Matthew, especially in our passage today. Five times in Matthew's gospel, in these infancy narratives, we're told that the angels appeared to either Joseph or the Magi in order to direct their steps. And at our most secret church, at our secret church meeting that our church had uh, a couple months back, we talked about the fact that we as believers ought to be very encouraged when we remember that, that angels exist as ministering spirits to serve those who will inherit salvation. They exist to serve us, God's people, as it says in Hebrews 1.14. And this passage gives us incredible evidence of that truth. The angels are serving God's people in order to ensure that the plan of salvation will not be thwarted. And they continue to serve believers today in ways that we may never know. Their presence is part of why we can rest in God's sovereign goodness and his purposes no matter what is happening in our lives. Another observation is that we need to be open to the manifold ways that God can reveal his will to us. And more than that, we need to intentionally seek out what God's will is for our lives, which may or may not conform to our present dreams and hopes and what we think is going to happen in our lives. God told Joseph at times, he directly intervened, telling him exactly what he wanted him to do, giving him the appropriate amount of information. And, and this caused Joseph to have to embrace a very uncomfortable set of circumstances that he never envisioned for himself. At other times, God's leading was more hands-off, uh, as, as when he seems to have allowed Joseph to make the final decision about settling back in Nazareth. The text leaves it ambiguous how much of this decision came from angelic guidance and how much of this came from Joseph's thinking. But in both ways of leading, God had a purpose for Joseph and the role he was to play in salvation history. And he intervened to make sure that everything was going according to plan. And the really cool thing is that didn't end in Joseph's day. You and I also have a role to play in salvation history. We have been sent on God's mission together to proclaim his sovereign rule and his gracious goodness found in Christ. And we must do the hard work of discerning what role he would have us play in the drama of redemption that is still continuing to play out. And finally, I think we're left to reflect on the question of whether we will trust God no matter what circumstances we face in this life. The circumstances that Joseph faced were certainly not the easiest to handle. And they provided him lots of opportunities to question what God was doing, what he was up to. Was he really good? Was he really sovereign? But as Matthew's shown us again and again, all these things occurred by the sovereign purposes of God for the good of his people to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies. The same is true in our lives today. 
He has proven himself trustworthy again and again in the scriptures, in my life, and I trust in your life as well. And so despite the way things deviate from what we expect or hope or dream, we're called to trust in him. We're called to live in the reality of what Paul expressed in Romans 8.28 when he said that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his sovereign purposes. We've seen in the first two chapters of Matthew that God's purpose for Jesus could not be broken. He would be, as we sing in our carols, Lord at his birth. Neither decisions of a husband nor the schemings of a despot nor the reputation of his hometown could prevent the fact that Jesus was born as the one who would save his people from their sin, as Emmanuel, God with us, as the rightful king of the Jews, as the true Israel, as the firstborn son of God, as the one who would bring exile to an end, and as the one who would suffer reproach and dishonor for us. In fact, all of the circumstances which seemed to hinder this reality actually had to occur that the Old Testament prophecies would be fulfilled. And so we can say that the purposes for his people similarly cannot be broken. Indeed, despite the way that things may look at times, every aspect of our world, every strand of human history stands under the sovereign, loving purposes of our God. And this is why this Christmas season, no matter what's happened in the past, what's happening now, or what will happen in the days to come, we can fully rely on our all-powerful and loving God. And we can sing the triumphant Christmas songs this season, like the one we're going to sing in just a moment together. We can truly proclaim joy to the world the Lord has come. We can exhort the nations to receive their king. And we can sing how his rule is one of truth and grace, showing forth the wonders of his love. All this because we've found that the Lord is sovereign over history and good to all who put their trust in him. Let's pray together. Father, we are in awe of the truth of your word and what it tells us about the purposes and the plans you have for us. And more than that, the purposes that you have accomplished through your son and sending him into the world to be the Messiah. And Lord, we pray that this Christmas season we would live in light of that reality, that we'd be reminded of what you've done for us and how that enables us to rest in who you are, in your goodness, your sovereignty, and your grace. We love you and we thank you for this time to worship you by hearing from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.